Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Holyrood, and on this edition of the podcast we'll bring you an interview with Roddy Dunlop. One of Scotland's leading lawyers and Dean of the Faculty of Advocates, Dunlop has been involved in a number of high-profile cases, including advising the Scottish Government in the civil case brought by former First Minister Alex Salmond. Despite calling Twitter a cesspit, he is outspoken on social media, recently defending the legal profession following comments by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But first, I'm joined by journalists Andrew Learmonth and Louise Wilson to discuss what's been happening over the past few days. And Louise, the First Minister uh, has announced a major relaxation of Scotland's COVID restrictions. Yeah, so nearly all legal restrictions are to be removed from Monday in what some parts of the press have dubbed Scotland's Freedom Day. Although Nicola Sturgeon herself was careful not to frame it in those terms, um, she warned that declaring freedom would be too premature, uh, of course different to what's happened down south. Um, That's because COVID is still out there, cases are still over a thousand a day at the moment, Um, and there's also no guarantee that restrictions won't be reimposed at some point, especially in response to things like local outbreaks we might see kind of travel restrictions if uh, for example one of the cities gets hit pretty badly. And there's still some notable differences uh, with south of the border particularly um, on the advice around face coverings and also working from home. Yeah, so the important thing is um, the biggest difference is probably the one on face masks. Now, face masks are still going to be legally required in Scotland. It's one of the few legal restrictions that are remaining in place. So that means we're all continuing to wear face masks in the places that we do now already. Um, But then the guidance, as you say, is also a little bit different. Now, this is stuff that isn't legally enforceable, but it's still sort of advised and highly recommended. Um, So the Scottish government still want most people to work from home, um, social distance in like hospitality bars restaurants where it's possible although again not legally enforced and also to continue meeting up in well ventilated places outdoors or or offices where there's windows. Uh, Andrew we also uh, had a statement uh, yesterday from drugs minister Angela Constance following publication of the drug death statistics from last week which were pretty grim um just, just how bad is the situation in Scotland and, and what's the Scottish government now proposing to do uh, to fix it? It's bad. It's really bad. It's been bad for a very long time, but it's just getting worse. So uh, figures that came out last Friday showed that there were 1,339 drug deaths last year. That's uh, an increase of 75 on the year before. Um, roughly that works out as three people a day. So that's three people a day dying preventable deaths. Uh, it's the highest rate in the UK and in Europe. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think it's now, what, three times higher than it was a decade ago. Um, and, you know, men are... are almost three times as likely to have a drug-related death in women. You know, almost two-thirds of deaths were people between 35 and 54. And of course, it is people who live in the most deprived parts of the country. Uh, 18 times more likely to have a drug-related death uh, as those in, in the least deprived. And the big problem really 
is poly drug use as well, which is, is rife. So I think 93% of those who died uh, had more than one drug in the, the, the system. You know, uh, you know um, opiates, heroin and, and methadone were, were implicated in, in most of the deaths, you know, and there was benzodiazepines, sorry, benzodiazepines such as diazepam and Edzium implicated in uh, there are another thousand or so. Um, so it, it's been a real uh, 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 shame. It's, it's, it is. It's, 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 it's a real Scottish... I don't know what the best way of phrasing it is, but certainly it's Scotland's shame. It's just a real open sore in, 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 in for, for Scotland. Um, uh, uh, we saw the government kind of... The last year seemed to reach tipping point or seemed to the point where they went, right, okay, this is... We need to do something now. This is this is this has gone on. It's taken a, a very long time uh, to get there. Um, and so they announced, you know, huge amounts of funding to to try and and, and address this. Um, and then we had a, another statement from Angela Constance, sort of an emergency statement, as it were, at the start of the week. Um, uh, so she's looking at a number of things: the creation of you know new residential rehabilitation facilities, um, also looking at whether drugs and alcohol services should be included uh, in the proposed national care service. Um, she's also commissioned a, a review on the use of um, uh, of the illicit. Uh, Benzodiazepines, uh, street volume, um, uh, as well. So um, it, it, it'll be interesting to see whether or not there is a, a marked difference in drug deaths next year, um, uh, or whether or not we continue this pretty grim increase. I mean, since since the publication of the the Scottish figures last week, England and Wales have also published figures which show that drug deaths there are at record levels, although nowhere near as bad or as high as they are in Scotland. I mean, is there any indication why Scotland is so much worse? Or is that something that the Scottish government has to do? Is that part of the work the Scottish government now needs to do to try and ascertain why the situation is so much worse in Scotland? I mean, I think that's a very good use. I think polydrug use is, is, is more rife in Scotland than it is in, in other parts of the UK. Um, and I think I remember David Little from the Scottish Drugs Forum wrote something uh, a few years back talking about how poverty was really at the heart of, of Scotland's drug problem. You know, um, uh, uh, but you know there are parts of England which you know uh, have similar levels of poverty to parts of Scotland, and yet the problem isn't quite as bad there as it is here. So yeah, it's 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 one of those big questions: why why in Scotland? Do so many people die of these preventable deaths? Yeah, and you you mentioned last year the the, the figures. Uh, it, it seemed to reach a kind of tipping point where suddenly it broke into the public consciousness in a way that it maybe hadn't previously. Um, the previous drugs minister, Joe Fitzpatrick, um, was forced to uh, resign or he was sacked um, as a result of the figures. Why do you think that has happened? Because, as you say, these these figures have been on an upward trajectory for a long time. Why has it now suddenly got to the point where the Scottish government has realised, yeah, we have to do something about this? I, you know, it's, I, I think it's just I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I can. I don't know what the answer to that is. Why last year were people so shocked by the drug death figures? Um, they came out slightly later last year. They came out in December. It came out in the middle of the pandemic. I, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Um, or, or if it's just, you know, we were shocked into action or the government was shocked into action. But I, I, I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know why last year was a tipping point when previous years haven't been, because the figures have been atrocious for for, for some time now. Yeah. And Louise, you wrote a piece last week for Holyrood. You're 
talking about some of the frustration you felt about the the political point scoring that's gone on and the sort of inaction uh, about tackling some of the root causes. Yeah, it feels, I mean, much the same as a lot of other issues in Scotland. So much of it is put through a constitutional lens. So the Scottish government on the one hand saying that it won't shirk responsibility for what are horrendous figures, but then in the same breath pointing out that drug law is reserved. I mean, that's true, but what is look at what's devolved health education things that can mitigate against the the poverty that andrew was talking about um but then equally on the other side you've got some unionist politicians who are i mean almost gleeful when they highlight how much worse the problem is in scotland saying well if it was a problem with the misuse of drugs act why isn't it as bad in in england um But then it's also not as if um, a lot of the health services, a lot of the addiction services are getting tons of funding in in England either. Um, So it just seems there's a lack of explanation as to as to why drug deaths are so much worse in Scotland. Um, And it's just been used as political football, really. Um, So then, you know, we've had this going on for years and years and years, toing and froing between politicians, passing the blame between each other. And meanwhile, as Andrew said, three people a day on average are dying. And is is there any hope now that there's going to be some sort of political consensus and people are going to start to work together? I mean, it certainly didn't appear that way yesterday when Douglas Ross was uh, tearing strips off Angela Constance. (laughs) Certainly not. I mean, we can always hope, I guess, but uh, it it doesn't look like it it has got moved beyond that point of of that point scoring. I mean, you know, the opposition parties are are rightly calling for action and the government are saying that they're making those moves, but whether it'll actually make an impact it's difficult to say really and it's it's you know the the proof will be in the pudding it will look at sort of next year's figures because that's the thing also is that the government's defense line at the moment is that all the new stuff that they've put in this year won't have been borne out in the figures yet so i guess we'll see next year whether whether some of that um comes to fruition in terms of avoiding these preventable deaths yeah, and Andrew uh, Louise mentioned there uh, seeing everything through the constitutional lens. On that topic, uh, the Prime Minister is in Scotland this week um, after deciding to stay away during the election campaign, uh, although he's, he snubbed an invite to, to Butte House. Um, do you think we can expect to see more of Boris Johnson in Scotland in the, in the months ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we did have this conversation during the election campaign on one of the podcasts, didn't we? Because obviously Boris Johnson said that wild horses wouldn't keep him away from Scotland during the campaign. And then uh, he kept away during the campaign. So, um, but I think he will. I think he will, because the Constitution is coming to the fore again. Um, you know, the, the May's election was dominated by independence. Um and it doesn't show any signs of going away. We've got the SNP conference coming up, in which independence looks very much set to be one of the key issues there. And there's all sort of you know, task force work going on now and, and, and preparatory work. And there's the independence referendum bill, which is making its way through the, the, the Scottish Parliament. And as far, you know, as, as long as that's going to be going, then, you know, um, as long as the SNP are going to be making the case for separation, then it's going to be up to the Prime Minister and the other unionists parties to to make the case for for remaining part of the UK. So you know I think I think he possibly understands he's got a fight in his hands that he can't just say nope nope not now not until 20 2045 is what I think he said on Mar at the start of the year for the next referendum. Um so 
so yeah, I think I think you know it, it, it could be a more sort of proactive approach. We also have council elections next year as well, uh, and the Tories do did pretty well in the council elections uh, last time round. So I imagine there's a bit of that as as welcome to show them up. The SNP are delighted. They say every time Boris Johnson comes up to Scotland that it adds to their vote and it adds to the, the support for independence. Um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon probably got the headline she was looking for when she invited Boris Johnson to come and meet her in Butte House. And uh, of course he said, no, there's, you know, let's leave this to a much more formal structure that we agreed on, um, which meant that every single paper in Scotland went with Sturgeon snubbed by Johnson, um, which, you know, I don't think necessarily looks good for him. Um, but, you know, I'm sure Nicholas Sturgeon is, 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 is quite happy. He doesn't have to get the, the good crockery out in the <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's safe to say that the the independence debate and the constitution dominated the election campaign. But we've heard very little on the subject since. Um, do you think now that the the COVID restrictions have been relaxed to their I mean, lowest level that we've seen for quite some time, we'll start to get more chat about about NDRF two again? Yeah, I think I think we probably will because you know the the S and P Nicholas Sturgeon's under pressure from within her own party as she has been for a while, but also with the, you know the these new parties like the Alaba um, on the side sort of calling for 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 more action. Um, I think the other thing to remember is is obviously that the uh, the S and P are ninety five percent agreed on a cooperation um, deal with the Greens, so uh, obviously that then kind of effectively puts a, a, a substantial pro-independence majority in government in Scotland. So you'd imagine that would then be give the uh, the, the, the case for NDRF2 some impetus or the action behind NDRF2 some, some impetus. Um, but yeah. Well, some interesting uh, weeks and months ahead, no, no doubt. Thank you both. And uh, now for my interview with Roddy Dunlop, QC. So, Roddy, um, when we spoke earlier this year for the magazine, you described uh, Twitter as a cesspit and you said you'd been uh, convinced to join up. Um, but, yeah, you seem to spend quite a lot of time on there. Have you have you changed your mind about it? No, it's <laughs> it's still in many ways a, a cesspit, but um, it's one that um, of necessity sometimes you need to wade through. Um, it's, you know, it's an important way of, of engaging um, with, with the public um, in this day and age. And there are a lot of good things that come from Twitter. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But there are certain areas into which you tread warily, and um, the, the the ability of people to to attack um, from nameless, faceless avatars is is you know something that's not possible in real life, and that's what creates certain problems. Um, although. Uh, you know, I've I've been engaged in various discussions on Twitter about whether or not that should be allowed. I mean, should should you be requiring to have some sort of verification process before you're allowed on on that? And I see the downsides to that. There are many many contributor. I mean, the most obvious one in, in my field is the secret barrister. No one knows who the secret barrister is, and that's that's fantastic. You know, it uh, his his or her output is always um, extremely entertaining, well thought through. Um, uh, and uh, um, provocative sometimes, and that's to be welcomed. So I, I do see the downsides uh, and, and the upsides. Um, I just wonder whether or not there are certain uh, certain areas where uh, 
it, it enables people to to say things that are really uh, go beyond the pale in a in a way that it's quite difficult to hold them to account ultimately. Yeah, and last week uh, you took issue with something that the Prime Minister had said when he um, he basically accused the Labour Party of undermining the, the fight against crime. And he said that uh, the, the Labour Party had, had sided with what he called left-wing criminal justice lawyers. Uh, why, why did you feel the need to, to, speak out, to speak out on that particular issue? Well, it, was, it wasn't just the left-wing criminal justice lawyers. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely sure there are many lawyers working in the criminal justice system who would quite happily say that they are indeed left-wing. It was what he went on to say that, the, that, that those lawyers, and hence by association the Labour Party, were acting against the public interest. Um, I, I think that that is um, not an acceptable thing to, to see coming from the Prime Minister because um, the vast majority... Now, I, I don't say lawyers are beyond reproach. I don't say lawyers are beyond criticism. But the vast majority of lawyers who are acting in... Um, the cases to which his um, attention was doubtless focused, i.e. either criminal defenders or those uh, working in in immigration cases, the vast majority are doing their job in accordance with the rule of law in order to uh, attempt to defend some of the most vulnerable people in society. Um, That's not acting against the public interest, that's acting in the public interest. Do you think there was a, a deliberate strategy on the part of the UK government to undermine lawyers and the judiciary? Well, I, I genuinely hope not, because that would be um, a, quite a scary state of affairs. But we have now got a pattern of, of conduct where you have, um, I mean, as as you will recall, I've, I've had to write now twice to the um, the home the home office to say why are why are these attacks coming so frequently on the legal profession. Um, those attacks have been have been rubber stamped now at least twice by the Prime Minister, um, and, and it, it doesn't seem to me to be helpful. We have in this country a situation where we have an independent legal profession, we have an independent judiciary, we recognise the separation of powers, uh, and it shouldn't be for um, political parties to start um, it, trying to interfere with that in a way that is is frankly unhelpful. Why do you think those those sort of attacks are coming? Uh, well, it's it's part of. I mean, obviously, the, um, the the government, the UK government, have set their stall out as as being uh, one of the the main things to do. For example, to control immigration, and you know that's a policy that they are entitled to to pursue. Um, what what's not um, acceptable is to decry lawyers who are defending people in accordance with the law in accordance with their instructions and to, to hold them up to public opprobrium. Um, these are people that are doing their job. If you are instructed as counsel to, to run a case, then as long as that case is statable, um, it's not like you have a choice. You are professionally and ethically obliged to take that case and to run it to the best of your ability. Uh, and this, this sort of identification of, of such lawyers with a particular cause or a particular mindset doesn't um, acknowledge the actuality of the cab rank rule. It doesn't acknowledge the ethics under which council in Scotland and in England and Wales and indeed in Northern Ireland are bound. All of these bars recognise the cab rank rule. We're not entitled to turn down instructions just because they might be thought to be um, unpopular to a certain part of the population. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, is is attacking lawyers and attacking the legal fraternity uh, potentially popular in the eyes of certain parts of the, the public? 
Yeah, I, I, I previously described it as a, as populist, as dog whistle politics, but that, that is what it is. There, there's no doubt that there are many um, uh, voters that um, don't like lawyers. There are many voters that are, are fully um, on board with the idea of controlling immigration. And again, that's their entitlement. What I find deeply unhelpful is uh, attempts to castigate the legal profession, to demonise the legal profession simply for doing their job for furthering the rule of law uh, and for acting to defend people who, as I said, are amongst the most vulnerable in society. And do you think that kind of rhetoric comes from the same place as, uh, I mean, we saw the Daily Mail front page um, calling uh, various English judges enemies of the people after the after the Brexit vote. I mean, does it come from the same kind of place, do you think? Yeah, I think you, you would see many legal commentators have, have made the same point. Um, that, that, again, is, uh, I, I found that... Uh, Remarkable that, um, that we would see headlines like that. Um, you know, a ju- judicial decision arrived at by three of the most senior judges in the United Kingdom arrived at on the basis of legal argument advanced to them, being described as enemies of the people. I mean that that, that is again just not consistent with long-standing recognised notions in this country of an independent judiciary applying the law as they see it. The, the the judges should have no truck with populism. The judges should have no truck with ideas about whether or not the, judge, the, the judgments they come out with um, will be popular among certain parts of society. It's their job to apply the law without fear or favour uh, and to call them enemies of the people. To be fair, I don't think many people would now justify that headline. I think even the publication in question probably now acknowledges that that headline was not a great one, was not a great look. But it's all part of the, the same the same narrative, uh, and I do find that narrative deeply unhelpful. Yeah, so on the one hand, you've got kind of uh, attacks coming from politicians, but on the other side, um, there seems to be increasing kind of numbers of conspiracy theories uh, on Twitter and social media um, about, about cases in Scotland. I mean, there was numerous kind of theories about the salmon trial and then more recently we've had it with the the case of the blogger Craig Murray are you worried that there's a a kind of crisis of confidence in in the Scottish criminal justice system well I I think my my involvement in both of those cases pretty much constrains what what I can say um, about them in particular and and, and so I won't say anything about them Um, but I, I, I do um, think that we need to be very careful before attributing political motives to to any aspect of the the legal system, whether that be to crown office or to the judiciary. In my my own personal experience, um, I have always found the Scottish judiciary to be um, independent with 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 proper zeal, a, a, a true belief in the requirement for them to be independent. And I should say, um, I've always found that to be the case um, with um, with Crown Office. Um, if, you, if you look at the present law officers, for example, um, Dorothy Bain, Ruth Charteris, these are, these are people who spent their life um, pursuing, promoting an independent legal profession. Um, and they are absolutely, I have no doubt, firmly um, committed to the an independent prosecution system in Scotland. So I, I for myself, um, don't have any um, any belief in what you describe as conspiracy theories about um, uh, political interference 
with either the judiciary or the the, the prosecution system, uh, I I believe in the independence of these individuals. Has has any politician ever attempted to inter- intervene in a case or interfere in a case that you've been involved in? Well, again, that that would uh, involve me uh, discussing a case I've been involved in. So arguably, I should decline to answer. But as the answer is no, I can tell you no. I, I've I've never experienced anything like that. Um, I mean, you you do get the odd example that there was the the the, the well reported example fairly recently down south, which resulted in. Um, certain politicians being suspended from from Parliament for a day in in punishment of their uh, attempt or in sanction of their attempt to um, to interfere by writing to the judge uh, in support of of, of um, someone who'd been a, uh, accused of, of sex offences. Um, so it, it is it's not completely unheard of, but it is absolutely not the norm, uh, and I have no personal experience of it in Scotland. Okay. Um, one of your uh, members at the faculty is uh, Joanna Cherry, and uh, she was recently involved in a case where uh, a man was convicted for sending her um, threatening messages on, on social media. I mean, what do you make of some of the uh, opprobrium that's come her way since, since that verdict? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, as you know, I've, I've been supportive of, of, of Joanna, um, both on Twitter and otherwise. Um, and I, I do think that... Um, some of the reactions to, to her have been have been disgraceful, as, as witnessed indeed by the by the conviction itself, uh, which was a, a good example um, of the misuse of something like Twitter. You know, sending of you know very very serious threats that were properly categorised as criminal and, and dealt with as such by the criminal justice system. Yeah, so when the last time we, we spoke, we talked about the um, the Scottish government's hate crime legislation. And you said that uh, some of the initial concerns that the faculty had about the legislation had been uh, allayed, but there was still a concern that the, the law would have a chilling effect. Um, what, what do you mean by that? I think probably the main concern that, that's, that's left, um, and there's no, there's no real way of avoiding this, um, but uh, if, you, you know, if you're going to legislate in this area, there's no real way of avoiding this. Is the potential that um, the act is 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 weaponized by certain people to um, bring complaints, which will necessitate investigation, even if they didn't even if they didn't go anywhere in terms of a, an actual prosecution. Just the, the very prospect that you might be the subject in investigation and the possibility of prosecution and all that might entail might be such as to. Uh, cause people to to stay silent or to to moderate whatever they might previously have, have chosen to say, um, and th- that that is a concern. But it's not really one. I think there's an obvious way around if you if you're going to to put um, legislation in an area such as this, then that's uh, of necessity going to involve the possibility that legislation might be misused by some people. Um, so I think that's probably the the, the main concern about it, um, and it's going to be interesting. I think in, as as we see how the the act is applied uh, going forward, and we see whether or not, uh, for example, there are um, changes to involve um, misogyny, um, and just to just to see how that plays out. Um, it's it's always very difficult to anticipate in advance just exactly what a bill like this will mean in real life when it's enacted. Um, I, I, I do think that in large measure, the, the really concerning aspects of the of the bill were sorted by amendment 
in the course of discussion. But I quite uh, appreciate that there are there are a number of people who have ongoing concerns about what it's going to mean. So, do you think it's inevitable that we will get people using the the legislation maliciously to make um, vexatious complaints against others? I don't, I don't hope it, it's not inevitable, but it must be a real risk. Uh, I mean, you you can you could just see how um, certain people are, are prone to attack at the moment. Um, for expressing views with which others disagree, that any way of, um, of of trying to shut that person down is being resorted to. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw um, complaints um, in light of the act being used for that very purpose. Uh, it's not inevitable, and you would hope that um, due confidence with the um, uh, the good sense of people would mean it's not inevitable, but just looking at what's happening at the moment um, in terms of uh, attacks in certain regard- respects, I-, I think it's highly likely. And one of the criticisms that came out of the, the Salmon case was um, about the role of the, the Lord Advocate. And there was a lot of kind of um, soul searching about, well, just about the whole basically devolution settlement in Scotland. But one of the things that came out repeatedly was on the role of the ad, the Lord Advocate and that there should be a, a splitting of, of his dual role um, as the Scottish government's chief legal advisor and the, the head of the pro- prosecution service. I mean, do you, do you accept that there's at least an argument in favour of looking at that? There's certainly an argument. Um, it's, it's almost inevitably going to be looked at. Um, and I, I don't think... Anyone that's um, that's involved in the legal system would would say that just because it's been this way for hundreds of years, we should leave it that way. Um, I, I'm not particularly convinced that there's a problem. Um, I mean, just to, just to argue against what I've just said, um, that the reality is it hasn't caused a problem for hundreds of years, um, and the fact that there were certain uh, perceived difficulties arising in one particular case doesn't mean that the whole thing needs to be needs to be reviewed but I, I do see a case for at least discussing um, whether or not we should have a system that's more akin to that that applies south of the border where, where you have effectively a DPP director of public prosecutions that is, is solely responsible for the for the prosecution of crime in Scotland um, and and a different role for the, the the person who requires to give legal advice. To the Scottish government going forward, I can I can understand that that is consistent with the separation of powers um, that I've already mentioned, and, and in terms of which I'm uh, hugely in favour. Do you think the the fact that that case has uh, well for the time being at least gone away the, that that uh, that issue will also likely go away? Was it was that a byproduct of the kind of febrile debate around around that case? I'm, I'm not sure. I think there's there's. There's there's sufficient um, political will on uh, from from various corners um, that, that I think it's, it's probably going to require to be reviewed. Um, the, the the stark reality of it is that you, where you've got a situation where the head of the prosecution service uh, and it is, has to be an independent prosecution service is also a member of the government. Um, even if the reality is that independence is not sacrificed, in terms of the optics, um, it can be a problem. And if we think back to, for example, why it is we now have a Supreme Court, uh, we, we, we have a Supreme Court because the House of Lords 
was uh, sitting both as a member of the uh, the uh, um, the legislative, uh, but also as a member of the judiciary, um, and the optics of that didn't look good. Now uh, the reality is, I have absolutely no doubt that no member of the appellate committee of the House of Lords, just because they happen to also be technically a member of the legislative, was was ever sacrificing his or her independence. Absolutely no question of that in my mind. But because it didn't look great, because it didn't look consistent with the separation of powers, it was changed. So I can see a similar argument being advanced with regard to the the role of the Lord Advocate. One of the other kind of legal uh, hot potatoes that that certainly came out of the election campaign was the kind of growing uh, political consensus around scrapping uh, not proven. And, you know, it's been claimed that uh, the not proven verdict is used disproportionately in in rape cases. what is the point of having a not proven verdict if if the ultimate outcome is the same as uh, not guilty? Well, I mean that that's one of the arguments always used against it, um, uh, and uh, the, uh, um, the 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 primary problem that's said to exist is that um, it, it's an easier way for a jury to acquit. I, I, I don't. I don't accept that because the jury is always told you must be sure, you must be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that guilt has been established by the Crown. And if you're not, then you have one of two options. Um, you can you can find not guilty, you can find not proven. If, if that is how things are being done, then removing the not proven verdict would simply mean that in every situation it should be not guilty because... Ex hypothesi, a jury that is returning a not proven verdict has not been satisfied to the requisite standard of the guilt of the accused, and therefore it shouldn't make any any change uh, to the numbers. Um, what what's the point of the not proven verdict? Um, I mean that 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 is asked again and again because of course we're the only country um, in the world that has the not proven verdict. Um, the not proven verdict has um, has been there uh, for centuries. It has been criticised for centuries, and it has has withstood that criticism and has remained in place. Um, I, for one, um, think it is a, it's a unique facet of the Scottish judicial system that um, that should be retained. I don't. I don't really. I'm not convinced by the arguments to the contrary. So you don't think that. Just, just simply by getting rid of not proven, we would get uh, an increase in the number of rape convictions, for example. I, I can't see why that should be so. As I say, if if the if the jury's following the direction properly, then the jury should not be returning a not proven verdict in a situation where it's satisfied beyond reasonable doubt of the guilt of the accused. And therefore, if the jury is returning a not proven verdict, it means that it's not been so satisfied. Why do you think that argument's made then repeatedly? Because it is made. I mean, it's made by the likes of Rape Crisis Scotland that uh, that not proven is a, is a, is a barrier. It, it, it is, um, and I, I think you can you can only accept that argument if you accept that juries are not following the directions that they are given very clearly by the presiding judge. And, and I would be loath to to accept that that's the situation. Is there any argument for saying that? juries basically just don't understand the distinction between not proven and not guilty and that by getting rid of it you would basically make things more intelligible for them mm-hmm. well, i mean again given the, the the clear and simple directions that are given to a jury by a judge in in any such case um it, it that doesn't seem to me to fit and um, we also see 
a quite a significant incidence of of not proven verdicts in cases that don't have juries. Um, the 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 summary sheriff uh, or the sheriff who's hearing a criminal trial is is just as prone, if not more so, to return a verdict of not proven than one of not guilty. Um, and so again, I, I doesn't I, I haven't seen statistics that suggest to me that sexual cases are 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 more. Uh, more likely to result in a not proven verdict. I certainly haven't seen anything that suggests that in cases where uh, juries have been satisfied to the requisite standard, yet still they by mistake reach for a not proven verdict. Roddy, your uh, predecessor the, um, as the Dean of Faculty was Gordon Jackson, who's a former Labour MSP. Um, have you ever considered a career in politics yourself? Uh, ab- absolutely not. <laughs> it is... Uh, no, it, it holds no interest for me whatsoever. I do get the odd comment um, uh, on Twitter suggesting either that I should or that I am obviously wanting to uh, create for myself a career in politics. Um, no, uh, I, I really enjoy the independence of the legal profession. I have only ever wanted to be a lawyer uh, and the thought of a move into politics leaves me cold. So people assume that um, when you when you express an opinion on, on on Twitter that that's you have somehow sort of paving the way for your political career to follow. That that has been said more than once, and, and each time I've I've scotched it without um, any query or cavil. Um, I I have no interest in a career in politics. Um, the the, the law is all I've ever been interested in. On that note, Rory, thanks very much for your time. Good to speak to you. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends, because everybody has an interest in politics.